0: Youth Voice, a podcast giving young people in Ireland a voice in politics. Today we're joined by TD for Dublin Rathdown, Neil Richmond of Fine Gael. So welcome to the show.
1: Dermot, thanks so much for having me on.
0: Uh, well, you're part of the, I suppose, the new generation of TDs elected in the last election for the first time to, to the Dáil. So I suppose one of the things for a lot of young people at the moment is votes at 16. I know there's been new news on Finland and Warfields. Uh, I hope that I got his name right. Uh, his uh, bill to the Shannon I know there's talks of that possibly going to be going through soon. But what's the Fine Gael position on Votes at 16?
1: Yeah, the Fine Gael position is evolving. It's not actually where I'd like it to be. And I suppose my, my position has evolved. I am a strong supporter of Votes at 16, um, personally. Within the party, we've committed um, to bringing it in for local and European elections, because that can be done through legislation. It doesn't require a referendum. We have yet to have the full conversation that will see the party position move for all elections, all votes, presidential referenda, general election to 16. But I am very hopeful that we can change that. And I'm speaking with a lot of like minded people in the party of getting motions into the upcoming Young Finnegan National Conference and the Finnegan Ardesh in due course. And um, there's a couple of ways to look at this. There's the sort of um, tried and tested. well, if you're old enough to serve in the army or pay tax, you should be old enough to have a say in your future, which is absolutely valid. But one of the real game changes for me was during the marriage equality referendum as a county councillor, I ran a voter registration drive in my old secondary school. And in the space of an afternoon, we got 120 sixth years. So final year in school, six years registered to vote. Now, I don't know how they voted. I don't know which way they voted, but the biggest thing with voting is it's habit building. Once you vote once, you will probably always vote. And I was very lucky that my parents were very firm that we all play our part in democracy. So I registered, and I wanted to, I was that guy. I registered to vote the minute I turned 18. Before I nearly had a legal pint, I had the voter registration form into the, um, into the local council office. And in my Leaving Cert exams, between... Irish paper one and Matt's paper two, I went and voted in the first uh, Nice referendum and two other referendum that were on that day. And it's habit building. So I always voted, whereas a lot of my friends of the same age who didn't register to vote when we were just about to leave school, they didn't register in university, then maybe they went away and they kind of scattered about, they did some traveling. And it was only when they kind of got to their early to mid 30s when they had their for, you know, they were fully settled in work. They may have moved into their first home, maybe started a family that they registered to vote. So they'd given up at least 10, if not 15 years of their democratic involvement. Whereas if they had been, we were all would have been 16 in transition year, um, the year after the, our, the, the Southern equivalent of GCSEs, we all would have voted. And once you vote once, and it might've been a case for the first couple of years ago and packed your, your parents' house to vote, it's absolutely habit building. And I'm in politics a while, and I'm driven by the bigger the turnout, the stronger the mandate of the elected representative. And you look at countries like France that without mandatory voting have 85% turnouts. And I think a lot of that we can do if we can sort of ingrain that habit of voting as early as possible. I think it'd be really positive. It would also be better for the type of politics we do.
0: Absolutely. It's a big kind of thing that's very important to young people like myself. I know i am at 17 we can register to vote up here so I registered as soon as I could just just to be able to say I could but I suppose one of the kind of arguments that's thrown against us is this idea that young people aren't politically educated enough and while yes there will be a lot of people there'll be a lot of people like myself who are very engaged in politics very involved there would also be I suppose a lack of kind of formal political education so do you think there's a need for I suppose maybe in junior shirt or leaving shirt. I'm I'm not one hundred percent familiar with the Southern system and how it works. But with a, more of an more of a, I suppose mandatory political education. I suppose and that being added more as a subject and earlier on. Uh,
1: be, be, I'd be careful with the with the term political education or re education. It sounds like something <laughs> that in East Germany. But no, and that this is one of the big differences then in ancient history when I was 16, is we didn't have politics as a leading cert subject. We do now. And we didn't have what's known as CSP, so civic, so, c- social, and political education. It wasn't an exam subject for the junior cert, but they're there. And to be honest, that's only part of it. There are plenty of people I know of all ages who are not even a 10th of as politically educated as your average 16 or 17 year old, and particularly, the way the world has changed, the growth of social media, everyone's so much more accessible. The 16th and 17 year olds of today are a million times better politically educated than I was 20 years ago. And I was really into it as a teenager. Um, but we didn't like even the notion of WhatsApping your friends. You know, we, I didn't even have a mobile phone until I was 19. You know, you weren't getting around, you weren't able to share articles, you weren't, being, you weren't able to follow world leaders on social media. Like, I know what Leo Vragkar, Mihael Martin, Arlene Foster, Michelle O'Neill are doing every day at the moment. Whereas 20 years ago, you might have seen a little bit of a snippet on the news, but that's why it's changed. And I think there's certainly, there's a lot of people of certain generations that aren't that politically educated. And bear in mind, there's a huge chunk of the population that even though they have the right to vote, they don't exercise that right. And there's lots of reasons for that, but I definitely don't think that any of those things should be a barrier in bringing an equality to 16 and 17 year olds who are more mature now, um, mentally and emotionally and politically, I'd argue, than previous generations.
0: Absolutely. I think with that, on top of that as well, it makes politicians more accessible. And I've, I've found this with my own kind of work in politics and the podcast and the blog and is... You know, compared to whenever I was little, I always saw politicians as these big celebrities almost. Like I imagine kind of Michelle O'Neill up there with Rihanna. And You know, I remember almost, I remember getting to go to Stormont at age nine and talking to MLS and thinking this is a massive big deal. And now it's just, it's its almost reality for me. Just, you know, I'll, I'll tweet at somebody you know, or online or, you know, I'll, I'll fire abuse at somebody. You know, obviously I'll, I'll, Good abuse, but yeah. that's you know at a TD or something like that, which I think is is a big kind of, I suppose positive that the social media ge- age, which is you know while there are a lot of I suppose negatives and things that you know need to be dealt with, but I think that is certainly something that has definitely made politics more accessible and made it easier for young people.
1: For sure, and there would have been an eight days perception. I never shared it, but I you'd come across it when you're speaking with colleagues that I'm sure young people never vote. Or they dismiss um, the email or the letter that came in from the fourteen-year-old many years ago. But if I'm dismissive or rude of a sixteen or seventeen-year-old now, or a fourteen-year-old or fifteen-year-old, I'm going to get absolutely destroyed on Twitter or TikTok or any of the social media platforms. And I can't control; I get destroyed anyway as it is. But you know, there's nothing worse as a politician to not listen to the voice of anyone that's our job you don't have to agree with them you don't have to do what they want you to do but you can't dismiss it and certainly now the accountability for public representatives is so much higher and I think that's in many ways a good thing it's a bad thing when you when you're out with your family and someone thinks it's okay to take a picture of you or give you a stick but that doesn't really happen and some of the horrible abuse that you get in social media from faces people but I've seen many many people, online campaigners, and they they have no problem naming shaming the public reps that haven't replied to them, or that have just given them the copy and paste reply, or even worse, said like, you know, that's grand, come back to me when you're 18. You know, thankfully that isn't the mainstream opinion, but the accessibility and accountability of elected reps now is greater than ever. Um, And I think that's a good thing. Like, especially during the pandemic, when things have been so restricted, when people are stuck at home and, you know, we use social media as a tool, but it also means that people have, they go like, you know what? Like you, you hear of all these stories of, of proper mainstream celebrities, like Russell Crowe getting called out in, on Twitter and then doing a video for someone whose birthday was coming up. And you see all these things, but if you're a public rep, nine times out of 10, if someone tweets you something constructive, you're going to get back to them or you're going to pick up the conversation off offline and that wouldn't have been the case before so i think that's a really good thing and as i said this is going to sound really tragic but i joined tiktok for my sins and i don't know what age the people are asking me questions it turns out they could be 12 or 13 and they're asking questions about you know really simple things like how do you get elected how, how much does it cost to run for election what's it like having your poster on the lamppost um are the seats comfortable you know and you just answer them it, the, because they've, it's a very public platform. And if I was there to just take the mickey out of a very honest, genuine question, you look really lousy and rightly so.
0: So, I suppose the big question drawn from that is are the seats comfortable? Uh,
1: in the, in the, the actual Doll Chamber and House, they're not, to be honest. In the convention centre, they're way too comfortable. And Eamon Ryan and a couple others have come across <laughs> it as a result of that. Um, and the Shannon chairs, when I was a senator, were very comfortable. But no, the doll. You don't want to be stuck there for a five-hour um, budget debate without being able to go and stretch your legs. Definitely.
0: Well, there you go, young people. Uh, you better run for the Shannon and not the doll. But uh, I suppose moving on from that, uh, one of the big things that has made that social media has made more accessible is polling, and being able to see polls, and it's it's very good for whenever I'm writing articles and stuff. I can I can just quickly go see see a tweet of a poll. But I suppose Fianna Fall have really taken the brunt of the recent hits at the government. Like fall have been almost destroyed in the polls. I think they're hit sometimes hitting as low as fourteen or twelve percent. And whereas Fennegel have, you know, they've all they've always stayed quite strong, sometimes ahead of Sinn Fein, sometimes behind, but they're always only really between one or two points. So why do you think that is? Why have Fianna Fall kind of taken such a hit?
1: Yeah, like Opinion polls are very hard to kind of provide a run, run, running commentary on. And I'm not going to pretend like all politicians that, oh, we don't pay attention to polls and the only pe- poll that counts is election day. We live by polls. It's like when you support a football team and you live by um, football focus or soccer Saturday results coming in on a Saturday evening. You want to know how you're doing. But you do take them with a grain of salt because we've seen huge lurches in opinion polls. And it would be true of Sinn Fein. They had a fairly rubbish 2019 local and European election. by their own estimation. They lost half their council seats. They lost uh, a couple of MEP seats. And they hadn't really steadied. but where the real turning point was just coming into the general election campaign. And they had a surge in general election campaign. And that led to the result they got. And very good election results. I'm not ever going to dispute that Sinn Féin did not have a very good general election. Um, and I give them credit for that, and I admire the campaign they run, the issues they put to the fore, and the way they communicated them. But I suppose looking at the post-elections setting, um, the first thing that happened, obviously, is the pandemic came in, and we didn't have a government for a long time. And even though, Finnegan we didn't have a good election, we're not going to pretend like we did, um, we saw Leo as Taoiseach still and Simon Harris in health, taking very strong positions at the outbreak of the pandemic Um, this is a phenomenon that not to take anything away from the work of the lads but it's a phenomenon we see in a lot of countries called rallying to the flag whereby a time of crisis pandemic war anything like that people run to the leader and you would have seen in all countries um donald trump you know had a boost um angler merkel had a great boost boris johnson even got a boost and then by the time the coalition actually came into office. We were in sort of, I suppose we were in the second phase. Yeah, the second phase of the pandemic. So the first phase was the heavy lockdown and second phase was the steady release and then lockdown again, little release. And then we are where we are now, which is pretty miserable except the end is in sight crucially. Um, and by the time Michal and the Fianna Fáil members joined the cabinet and Stephen Donnelly took over health, a lot of the goodwill and the sort of the positive sense of, um, Sentiments have gone away. And then when I when I talked earlier, I referred to Donald Trump. If Corona hadn't happened, I had no doubt that he would be reelected. You know, the pandemic really showed up a lot of his faults and people started getting sick of it. And there was a lot more people liked what Joe Biden was saying. And the pandemic highlighted a lot of the concerns they had with Trump anyway. Um, and it motivated people to go out and vote him out, which hadn't happened when he went up against Hillary. So certainly Fianna Fáil, like like I have, you're gonna think I'm just saying this, I have a massive level of respect for Neil Martin. Um, I cannot fault his work ethic. Like he, I don't think he's been home to Cork in months. Like he's, it feels like, cause I'm sitting, as we have this conversation, I'm sitting out of government, looking at government buildings from my office window. And it feels like he's constantly hunched over the desk, working with people. And particularly his approach to the North, at uh, a shared island initiative. Like, I could have written that. Like, it's it's exactly my sort of the line that I really thought that someone needed to bring to the fore, and he eloquates it very, very well. But, yeah, people are understandably very unhappy in the country, and Fianna fall are the leading party, of the government, and they will take that. People forget that between 16 and 20, yeah, Fine Gael lost votes, lost seats. So did been Fáil. And the big problem is when you become a new government and we saw this a little bit with Sinn Féin after the election we generally get a, a honeymoon period so in 2011 the Fine Gael Labour Co- Coalition had a massive honeymoon period because we did such a good result you can argue I think it was maybe the 2017 or 2016 assembly election where the D.P. had a huge result and you know there was a huge wave of initial support behind Arlene Foster from all shades of unionism and whatever else and within her own party but Fianna Fáil never got the honeymoon period this time because they didn't have a massive election when they lost seats, they lost votes. And we stumbled together a coalition of three parties that apart from the Greens who'd had a great election, weren't, probably weren't that popular. Whereas what we saw after the election is Sinn Féin had had a huge result. They had their rallies afterwards and they picked up a lot of new members and a lot of people particularly on social media or of a different generation who never would have thought of Sinn Féin started to see them in a different light. Um, and that's kind of fed out into the polling in terms of Sinn Féin's results have maintained and got better. Look, their opposition and it, opposition is easier than government. And it's not to say that they're not an effective opposition, it's just um, this is a really difficult time and if you're not happy with the government, you have a very clear alternative. Different alternative as well. Whereas Fine Gael, there's still an element that, well, they remember like Simon Harris, they remember went from being a really unpopular minister to a touch of rock star. There's nothing I like more than when he shares something of mine on Instagram because you know you're going to get about 5,000 more likes because he, you know, and that was down to, he, was, he handled the start of the pandemic very, very well as Minister of Health in terms of the clarity of his message and how he was able to connect with possibly people who felt they were being um, sidelined from politics. So I suppose in a roundabout way, without giving you a very straightforward answer, that would probably explain a lot of the polling phenomenon. And then when you look at the smaller tracks, the Greens have more or less stayed the same, lost a little bit. And as someone who's just into politics and has been working in politics, never mind being elected representatives, you do see a surge behind the Social Democrats as well. And then again, that feeds up ex-Green voters, people who aren't prepared to go to Sinn Féin, people who aren't prepared to go to People for Profit. The Labour vote still hasn't recovered. You know, that's, as a Dublin TD, the rise of the Social Democrats is a far bigger concern to me in my constituency than possibly Sinn Féin.
0: Definitely. Uh, I suppose moving on from that, one of the, I suppose, it's the big issues of the past few years, you know, other than COVID, everything has always been Brexit. It's been Brexit since 2016. We've all been debating it and fighting over it. and Now, it seemed like we were out of the dark and then back in with the NI protocol and it's all just thrown everything into the air again. So I suppose, what is the actual situation in regards to the Republic of Ireland? Because it's been very clear that the unionism opposes the protocol. Nationalism wants it to stay, but would rather be in the EU and out of the UK. The UK government say they want to protect it. A lot of the EU wants to protect the protocol. But what is how is it working in the Republic of Ireland?
1: Yeah, no, the Irish government strongly backs the protocol. We don't like it. We didn't want it. We didn't want Brexit. Um, there is no easy solution, but the Irish government's biggest aims Uh, Were threefold going out, you know, immediately after the referendum result was one, first and foremost, protecting the Good Friday Agreement by ensuring there's no hard border on the island of Ireland, protecting the rights of Irish citizens in Northern Ireland, and protecting Ireland's place in the single market. Protocol does all those things. And the biggest issue is that for a lot of people in Britain is that they never considered what the impact of Brexit would be on Northern Ireland. And... We very much want there to be an element of flexibility to the protocol. We would have been working really, really hard with European Union colleagues to deliver flexibility in terms of grace periods and all these other things. But um, the actions of the last week where the British government have taken unilateral moves is really damaging. And I do fear that there are certain elements in unionism that are using the protocol as an excuse. They've never wanted the protocol. They wanted Brexit. They never wanted the protocol. Originally, they never wanted the Good Friday Agreement. They never voted in favour of anything. They're going back to talking about supposed solutions. Some of the unionists who are more moderate that I really respect are talking about Ireland leaving the single market in order to protect. Like, we didn't vote for Brexit. We're not in the UK. And so it's a real difficult position that if you actually had half the energy being put into trying to stop the protocol and block and wreck the protocol and all the other conspiracy theories there, if you have half that energy going into well, how do we make it work, what flexibilities do we need, what opportunities, and there's a couple of um, politicians, Matt O'Toole the MLA in South Belfast, Stephen Farry, the Alliance MP in Northampton I think it is, like they're talking about well actually there are certain things that we can make work here and it isn't helped when you have certain politicians of a very strong unionist hue going over and saying look all the supermarket shelves are empty, You know, we can't get cricket pitches into the north, all these things that aren't necessarily actually stacking up. Um, So I think there's no easy solution to this. The protocol isn't going anywhere. There isn't going to be any massive changes to it. And the short-term relief or glee some people are talking about with unilateral actions, in the medium term, it's really damaging to UK-EU relations. And I've said a hundred times that Ireland is the UK's best friend within the EU. But the british government is making that really difficult and unionism all, all shades of unionism say the eu and um the irish government aren't doing enough to understand them and that might be fair and look we're more than happy to have the conversation but you know they could perhaps say that with the british government too um because it's not necessarily the exact same opinion and if there are practical difficulties and i speak with the bodies like the retail consortium and the manufacturers and the haulage Let's talk to the practical problems and see where we can find practical solutions. Just coming out with these grand statements and damning the protocol must go, it brings no solution to it. And that is the shared opinion, I'd say, of every... Like, at the end of the day, Brexit isn't an opinion divider in the Republic. Like, we all are opposed to it and in various different guises. And we all believe that the deal that was achieved on Christmas Eve is the least worst option and the protocol at least ensures that we can have some sort of working relationship but i think people are going to have to start taking it a bit more serious because it isn't going anywhere and that's the same from for the british government as it is for the european commission
0: absolutely i think we're gonna wrap up there just for time uh, thank you so much for coming on it was really great uh, to have you on uh to everyone listening thanks for listening uh, you can read our blogs at www.youthvoiceni.com. You can find us on Twitter at, at @youthvoiceNI and you can find us on Instagram on at Youth underscore NI. And of course, we have launched, we've officially launched our working group for educational inequality. So if you want to get involved in that, uh, you can contact us at any of the social medias or you can email me at dermot at youthvoiceni.com. So once again, thank you all for listening and we will see you all next time.